From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. This is Donald Jeffries, guest hosting tonight. Very uh, privileged and honored to do this for the great Richard Serra. He'll be back with you next week. And uh, we're talking to John Barber, show business legend, protege, or whatever you want to call it, of Jim Garrison, his Boswell to Jim Garrison. We're going to get into that in a minute. He is... Uh, the author of a fantastic new book just released a couple months ago, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV, uh, with a foreword by yours truly. Very honored again to do that. And um, it's just a fantastic read. For any of you out there, please read it. It's, you're, you will not be disappointed. It's, it's very long. But uh, it, it moves very fast. It's kind of like watching Oliver Stone's JFK. It, it, you know, it, it goes by fast. <laughs> you'll, you'll be uh, you'll be so engrossed in it that you won't uh, even be bothered by the length, and you'll, you'll actually want more. But John, first, let's talk a little bit about how, how you came after all the kind of these uh, ups and downs in show business. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, periods of when you're out of work, trying to figure out which way to go. Stand-up comedian. Uh, uh, prospective hot talk show host, a film critic, where you were one of the first film critics, maybe the first one on on, on television with the, the local uh, Los Angeles station, working with Tom Snyder for years, uh, doing that kind of stuff. And then you come to Real People, you hit it big for a few years there, where it's number one show in television. And you said it happened accidentally, so talk because I think the audience probably maybe recognizes you mostly from Real People. So talk a little bit about Real People, uh, maybe give an inside story or two on on that. Well, I will, but you know what was really touching to me a little while ago? Uh, uh, and, and I'm astonished by it because it was only one word. Uh, I mean, I'm, and also I was really touched and moved, and thank you so much not only for the introduction to the book but for, you know, plugging the book. But it was during the break when they mentioned that the show comes from Toronto. I mean, it had a real strong emotional impact on me because, of course, that's where I was born, in the Salvation Army Charity Ward, and I was out on the streets by the time I was six or seven years of age, and I left there when I was 17 to come to the United States to be a professional gambler. And then you're mentioning my book, and right now my dream is... I'm three or three and a half weeks away from returning to Canada. I expect to be in Vancouver for three or four days doing three, two or three, uh, very popular radio shows, a couple, all of them national radio shows and doing a bunch of book signings. Then I'm going to, uh, rent, uh, rent a car and then I'm going to drive around uh to Edmonton, Winnipeg, and a few places like that to do book signings, go back to Vancouver and return to Toronto as a prodigal son, I hope, and stay there a week. And uh, Richard has asked me to come into the studio to do the show with him in the studio. So I'm really looking forward to that. But I don't know why the word Toronto hit me so hard Uh you know, isn't that funny? That's weird. Anyway, what what is it you would like me to talk to talk about or start or whatever? Well, I, I think the I think the because most people I think know you from certainly that's where I knew you from was real people. So it, it, this is kind of that was the highlight of your show business career. You you become the host and uh, the creator and one of the hosts of 
of a show that was number one on television for three years. So what was that like, finally hitting it? Finally, you, you talked about you know making a lot more money. Uh, being, I think you described it as being the only thing you really miss about being a celebrity like that is getting a good seat in restaurants, things like that. What was yeah. it like to finally be on top for, for, for a few years there? Well, I'll tell you how the show came about. And it came about quite by accident. I was the a film critic, as you mentioned, on the 6 o'clock news with Tom Snyder. And I sat right next to the teletype machines that brought in the stories. And often the story would come over uh, the teletype machine. And the teletype machine was called Reliable Sources. And they come from the AP wire services and Reuters and stuff like that. And a lot of those stories said, not for broadcast. And one of the ones was a story about this beautiful, beautiful, tall brunette who was a stripper. And uh, she said that God gave her this magnificent body, and women have magnificent bodies to become sex objects to men so that uh, God's creatures can be reproduced. So she said she was going to strip for God, and she was going to tithe her church. <laughs> that is exactly what she did. So I gathered a bunch of these stories. Another one was a fellow named Roy Reek, who was, in, he's in the Guinness Book of Records as the unluckiest man in the world. And when you catalog his disasters, you begin to laugh and laugh and laugh because you can't believe it's like a Sholem Aleichem story. It gets worse and worse. And the only thing you can do is, is laugh. And he used to watch the 6 o'clock news to see if people had it tougher than him. <laughs> so anyway, I gathered these, and one day I get a call from Ray Stark. Ray Stark is the most successful producer in Hollywood. So I meet with him. He invites me to lunch. He's got his own private dining room with waiters and everything like that. <laughs> and we get into a conversation about Ben Hecht. Ben Hecht was... Uh, he wrote the best book about anybody in show business until I wrote mine. His book is called A Child <laughs> of the Century. Ben Hecht was the highest paid screenwriter in America. He wrote Gone with the Wind in 12 Days and never read the book. He invented gangster movies with Scarface. And he wrote Front Page with Charles MacArthur, and he became the first paid propagandist for the non-existent state of Israel. He's the first person to whom I ever wrote a fan letter. Now, you think I'm not going to talk about real people, but I am, because it all comes <laughs> together. I wrote the only fan letter I ever wrote in my life, Jeffrey, but the only one. And the first sentence was, Mr. Hecht. I am so dreadfully sorry I accidentally picked up your book. Because <laughs> barring anything found new by uh, Mark Twain, you've totally destroyed everything I will read in the future. <laughs> Two weeks later, I got a handwritten letter from him. He said he was going to the Laguna Playhouse to put on a one-act play called Winklebird, and when I could come down for a few days and be his assistant. And I went down and, and I met I, I I met him, so that's why I tell you that story. But in any event, I have always figured being around actors so long because when I was a male boy at Paramount, that's all I saw, and most of them are inarticulate boobs. And let's say I have a writer, 
And Robert De Niro proved that a year ago at the Tony Awards when he told the president to go F himself. I mean, not only was I appalled by what it is that he said, for God's sake, even though I'm not a fan of Trump's, is that De Niro, by doing that, destroyed every movie that he ever made that I loved. Because I can't watch him in The Godfather now without knowing what an inarticulate idiot he is. And I met him when he couldn't speak, but I didn't know that he couldn't speak. He just never spoke when I was at parties or some place with him. So in any event, I, uh, be, being at the news and having access to these stories, I put them together. And, and Ray Stark said, would you write a movie? And I said, no. He said, well, if you're going to write a movie, what would you write about? I said, well, you know, Americans don't write about people. Nobody seems to have a job, for God's sake. We write about things and events. I said, if I were writing a script, I'd write a love story that starts one New Year's Eve and ends the next New Year's Eve. But through a lot of the scenes, I would show you television in the background. It would either be a game show or it'd be the news, but it, it would show our culture. And these people would both have jobs. Well, something like that ended up in Warren Beatty's Shambhu. But he offered me $50,000. And I turned it down as a conflict of interest. And I said, he said, what did you want to do? I said, I want to do a show about real people. I showed him the stories and he howled. So he called his agent and said, I want to help John. And then I thought, oh, my God, I'll get all the help in the world. And the agent called me about a week later and said, no, he's in movies. We're not going to have him do this. So I couldn't, nothing happened. Anyway, uh, I had asked for a $50 raise as a critic because I was the number one critic in the country. I was only getting $350 a week. I was on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I was responsible for 10% of all their viewership. And they wouldn't give me a $50 raise, so I didn't want to do it, but I quit. But before I quit, they sent me back to the program director job as the general manager of the ABC station in Chicago. So I went back and uh, I had to fill in for a guy that left there to come to L.A. And so I filled in and on like the fifth day, a group of lawyers, because I had Nixon's speechwriter on and we spent the whole hour talking about the assassination of John Kennedy, because his boss, Nixon, was always referring to that Cuba thing when it was actually a code name for Dallas. One of the really wonderful things about the book is not just the history of the media and how it's declined in the history of our culture and how it's declined and our politics has declined even worse. It's a story of somebody who survived hearing no 10 times a day for 80 years and still succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. I don't want anybody to pass up the opportunity to have their life lifted and encouraged by reading this book. I got a review that I sent to you from a very, very dear friend of mine who is very talented, his name is Jeff Arbaugh. He was this talented actor and a writer in Hollywood. And when he turned 30 years of age, he gave up, and he had all this talent. He wanted to become rich, and he got into business. He got rich. He's very, very rich now. 
he asked, he got my book back in April and he didn't read it with 720 pages. And he picked it up two weeks ago. He wrote the most glowing review and he said he'd, I'd wish he'd read it 30 years ago because he would have never given it up. So now he's back on stage and writing, which is something he should have done long ago. So I encourage anybody, instead of getting a self-help book, which is useless, get a real-life book about somebody who survived. This is what fascinates me about you, is that you combine, you know I love show business, and I'm, I'm writing a book about show business now, about the old days. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by that. And, of course, the JFK assassination is kind of my baby. You know, it's where I, I got started back in the 70s with Mark Lane. So how how did you, and I, I have to think, I think we've talked about this before, that this kind of made, didn't exactly make you popular in Hollywood when you started getting into the JFK assassination. How did you gravitate towards that? And, you know, of course, you ended up talking to Jim Garrison and interviewing him, but how did you go from the world of stand-up comedy and all this entertainment to suddenly getting into more serious subjects, starting with the assassination of John F. Kennedy? First, let me finish the real people story, and then I'll get okay. to that. Okay. If we don't have too many musical in- in- uh, interruptions. A group of lawyers <laughs> in Chicago took out an ad in the Tribune telling ABC to keep me because that was the most intelligent conversation they'd ever heard. And Phil, Phil Amara was uh, uh, the general manager. So I, I said to Sarita, my wife, because my wife was there with me and with Christopher, which is a couple of years old. And I said, I would love to do this because this is Ben Town. This is where he got started as a columnist. And I loved it. And I did my reviews there in the new zoo, and I became a star in a week. Even though I was at two weeks, I was a star at the end of the week. And Phil Mayer turned me down because he said his bosses thought I was too controversial just based on that interview with Nixon's speechwriter. Now, I'm not a, I'm not into the assassination at the time. I don't care. It's just a great story. And that, and I visioned myself as a storyteller. So what happens is that my son's god, uh, my son's godfather, who was now with Get Smart, is now producing the Barney Miller show for Danny Arnold. And so Sarita, when she finds out that I'm not, they're not going to hire me permanently. I won't. So they replaced me with Charlie Rose, who was so bad after two weeks to get rid of him. And they bring in this black girl from Cincinnati, Oprah Winfrey. Now she does very well and she asked ABC to syndicate her, but ABC said no. Nobody would be interested in buying this show. So two guys named the King Brothers who were, the only show they had was our gang. And they were just barely getting by. So they stepped in to syndicate Oprah's show and all three of them became billionaires. In any event, Sarita goes back. And she meets with Danny Arnold, the co-creator of Barney Miller. And Sarita says, my husband, and, and Chris Hayward, who's the, my godfather, my son's godfather, say, John has this great idea about real people. And you should let him do a show about real people. So he gives me $1,000 a week for 13 weeks to create the pilot. My co-host is going to be Richard Pryor. <laughs> and my consumer advocate is going to be Jackie Mason. And so when I go, I had Danny sets up a meeting with a guy named Lou Ehrlich. I'm going to put this on pause a second because this is very important. You know the name Freddie Silverman? Of course. 
Okay, the first time I met Freddie Silverman, Jerry Weintraub was my uh, first manager. Jerry Weintraub, who ended up touring with Elvis and Sinatra and managing uh, John ben Denver and a lot of people. I was one of his first clients. He takes me in to meet uh, Silverman when Silverman's at CBS. And, in front, and he's younger than me. And he said in front of a bunch of people, you're never going to make it in television. You're too soft. This is the same Freddie Silverman that canceled Hollywood Squares off of CBS. And it ended up at NBC where it became a major hit. I must tell you, if one creative thought was Niagara Falls, Freddie Silverman would die of thirst. Anyway, he <laughs> ends up at a he ends up at ABC and he lucks out with a show called Roots. And he, it, it's the biggest show ever in the history of television. And they become, and NBC is bombing. So what they do is they raid NBC and they hire Freddie Silverman. You may not remember this, but it was huge news. He was ordered by the courts because of the contract to have no contact with any network or anybody in show business for a year until he became the president of NBC. And guess where he lived with that, uh, for that year? He lived in Danny Arnold's house in Hawaii. Now, I'll tell you why I bring this up. Anyway, Danny sets up an appointment with me with a guy named Lou Ehrlich. And, and, and I've already done the five scripts. And he said, what are these scripts? You just have introductions to a, a film. Where's the film? And I said, well, I'm going to go out and shoot it. And he said, well, this is a bunch of crap. And who's going to be your co-host? And I said, Richard Pryor. At the time, Richard Pryor was in jail in Los Angeles. He had done a special for NBC, and Standards and Practices edited out one of his controversial pieces, and Richard went in and punched his face out and was arrested. Mm -hmm. And then the IRS was waiting for him for income tax evasion. But he was a friend, and he was funny, and he was filling art houses since he changed his act and became Richard Pryor and started smoking dope and you're just shit. And I said to him, hold it. I've won five Emmys and a golden mic. I wouldn't call that shit, Mr. Ehrlich. He said, you're shit. Danny Arnold is king. Anyway, I go back to the office and Danny Arnold's laughing because Lou Ehrlich called and told him what a piece of crap I was. And so Danny Arnold decides that he's going to cast it. And I said, it's going to be a bob. And I went out and shot all the pieces. The audience loved the pieces and hated the people that Danny Arnold had selected to host the show. So it died. But in the meantime, every time I came in, and I show, showed him the stripper for God, and I showed him the unluckiest man in the world. He was on the phone to Freddie Weintraub of Fred, Freddie Silverman in Hawaii. Okay, so put that in your memory bank. So what happens? ABC turns it down. I take it to four or five of the most successful critic uh, producers in the business, and they turn it down. And, and and I quit the business. I quit. I was 46 years of age. And I remember the day I was standing, I had a small, small bungalow 
into Luca Lake, and I'm standing on the corner next to the golf course, and I'm saying, you know what? I'm getting, I can't do this. I'm not going to succeed as a producer. I'm not going to succeed as a stand-up. I'm giving it up. And I'm going to become, my son was 10 years of age at the time. I'm going to become the father to my son, the father that I never had. My father deserted us when I was six years of age. And I, in the book, I tell the story of how I tracked him down in England. But in any event, I give it up. And you want to know something, Jeffrey? 46 yes, years of age. It was the only happy day of my life, except for the day I married Sarita and the day my son was born. This was the third half. It was the only day I had ever felt at peace. Now, I've got to put that on hold a second. While I'm a critic at, N- at NBC, a movie comes out called The Great Gatsby. Yes. You remember the film? Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm trying to remember the guy who was the head of Paramount Studios, very famous homosexual who married some very wealthy lady. We'll be right back after this with JFK Assassination Researcher and the man who invented reality TV, John Barber. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back. This is Donald Jeffries filling in tonight for Richard Serrett, who's taking a well-deserved break. Uh, he will be back next week with you. We're talking with John Barber. John, I, I want to make sure we have enough time to, I, I think, discuss uh, your, your fantastic work with the JFK assassination. I think the audience is probably more attuned to that part of your career, um, which culminated you know, in, the, in the fantastic film, which everybody needs to go see. Buy John's book, but also go out and buy his film, The American Media, and The Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which is, uh, for my money, the best work out there, which examines the uh, abysmal way our uh, state-controlled media has behaved uh, since the very beginning in reporting the facts uh, about the assassination of President Kennedy. So can we talk a little about that? Yes, I'll get to that, but this is something. You asked me how real people started. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Barry Diller was the head of Paramount Studios. At the time, George Slaughter got an order for four Lappin specials, and you remember Lappin was one of the great cultural comedy hits in America, but it only lasted three years because George Slaughter, the co-creator of the show, the show was really written, created by a drunken Englishman, uh, a drunken Englishman. And uh, he was he was brilliant. But George ended up owning the show. And uh, what ha- what happened is that George got de- jealous of the two guys, Rowan and Martin, who were becoming the stars when George wanted to be the star. So the show collapsed and George went to a psychiatrist. Anyway, NBC wanted to revive the show, George said, no host, but I'll do four specials. Now we come back to Barry Diller and um, the, the movie I was talking about, uh, The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby, right? It, it looked beautiful, and Robert Redford was handsome, and the women were beautiful. It was Clayton's photography was absolutely brilliant, but they told the story lousy. 
it was a crappy movie, but it got on the cover of Time magazine. It got on the cover of Newsweek magazine. And Barry Diller was going around saying, we've just bought a clothing company because Paramount's going to become rich, richer uh, manufacturing Gatsby clothing than making movies for crying out loud. And all around town, where they're nothing but Gatsby parties. Now, at the time, Jeffrey, it was only $3 to get into a movie. And Barry Diller announces that what we're going to do is we're going to double the price and charge $6. It's such a great movie. And everybody agreed with him, life and time and everybody, except me. <laughs> and what my closing line of my review was, the only way Barry Diller is going to get $6 for this movie if he charges 3 to get in and 3 to get out. <laughs> well, that was picked up by Time Magazine and the movie bombed, and justifiably so. But I got a call from George Slaughter, who was laughing. He said, hey, can I buy, you know, all this funny stuff you write in your reviews, can I buy it? And I said, you can have it for nothing. It's public. It's out there. You can just... Steal it like Milton Berle. <laughs> and then I said to him, you know what, George? Oh, everything in laughing is only like 8 or 12 seconds long. Why don't you let me be the critic at large there like I am here? I'll write my own stuff. You can pay me scale as a writer and pay me scale as a performer. So he hired me. So myself and the drunken Englishman, Digby Wolf, and George Slaughter, the three of us, wrote these specials that introduced Robin Williams and a couple of other really fantastic, fantastic talents. So I knew George, and they never picked up the show because it didn't have a it didn't have a host. Anyway, when ABC turns me down and nobody else will buy this, I'm standing on Foreman Avenue in front of my house and I'm giving my career up, and I'm 46, third happiest day of my life. And I go in the house, and the phone rings, and it's Digby Wolf. And Digby says, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I just quit show business. He said, how'd you like to get back into it? I said, what do you mean? He said, I just signed a contract with Westinghouse to develop shows. And I read in the trades that you said you were going to change the face of American television with a reality the entertainment of reality. How would you like to come and do it here? I had been under contract to Westinghouse's Merv Griffin's replacement, and they loved the idea that I'd be working with Bigby. So I go in to meet with Bigby, and I'm sitting down on a couch. His office is across from George Slaughter's. George comes out, and he sees me. He said, what are you doing? I said, waiting for Bigby. He said, why don't you come in here a minute? And I had the five scripts in my hand. So I go in there, sit down with him, and we chat. And he tells me he gets this unbelievable call for Freddie Silverman. And Freddie Silverman, do you know anything about real people, George? Or he says, no, I don't know. Only show people. He said, do you think you could do a show? Because he did the Judy Garland show and a bunch of other things. And... He, Silverman says, can you do a show about real people? And he said, yeah. So he says to me, why don't you come here and do your show? And he puts down on a piece of paper $5,000 and hands it to me. I said, what's this? He says, this is going to be your salary as a 
performer. So I write back, what's my salary as a writer? He writes back, $1,500, what's my royalty? So we go back and forth, but he won't give me a producer's fee because he's afraid of a lawsuit. So we get to do our first special, and it happened that easy by accident. Now, guess who he wants as his first girl host? Susan Anton. Do you remember (laughs) Susan Anton? Sure, sure. Uh, tell the audience who Susan Anton was. Well, very, very uh, model. I, th- I believe she did a little acting. She was more notable. Very tall, uh, you know, striking woman. I believe she was mostly noted as one, maybe one of the first supermodels. No, she w- well, she did that also. But she yeah. was a fantastic singer, and she was oh, the lover of the guy that started off Arthur, that little English actor. Oh, Dudley Moore, yeah, yeah. Sure. They, they, they were a couple, and she's a foot <laughs> and a half taller than Dudley. Uh, than Dudley. And Dudley twice only lived size. a couple. Yeah. Huh? Twice his size. He was very short. Yeah, so I said to George, you can't hire Susan Anton. He said, why not? I said, people are going to look at her and say, what does she see in nothing but unknowns, okay? And and because the stars of the show are going to be the stories that we're going to tell. And the other host that he wanted to be close with me was David Steinberg. David Steinberg is a comic, or was a comic, and everything was political. And I said, you can't even have David. But he said, no, he wanted David, and David came in and turned down the show because there was no stars. Anyway, I go home, and I say to my wife, I think I had my first argument with George Slaughter over the cast. And my son is 10 years of age. And he said, Dad, have you ever seen Sarah Purcell? And I said, who's Sarah Purcell? (laughs) Well, she co-hosts on the morning show on the ABC with Regis Philbin. Why don't you take a look at her in the morning? So I get up in the morning, and I look at Sarah. And, God, she's adorable. She'd been a weather girl in San Diego, and she just was so relaxed on camera, and she was appealing and attractive and articulate. So I call her, and I set up a meeting. So she comes the next day to Schlatter's office, Slaughter doesn't talk to her five minutes and hires her. And then Slaughter calls my house and invites Christopher to come the following day to see him. So, of course, he's only 10. So his mother, Sarita, has to take him. So Sarita takes Christopher into the office to meet George. And guess what George has? George knows that my son loves Superman, that that's what he wore every Halloween and has this huge poster signed by the creator, Siegel, of Superman, and gives it to my son. That's what's hanging behind me in my office when you call me in my office and see me on camera. And that's why I always wear the Superman shirt. That's where it started. Well, that's become your new signature. We'll bring up the JFK assassination right after these messages. We'll be right back. Okay. Afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. This is Donald Jeffries, your guest host tonight. 
talking to show business veteran John Barber. So let's talk a little about the JFK assassination, how you came uh, into that world, and that's pretty much how we met in a cyber sense because of the mutual interest in the JFK assassination. Again, Jeffrey, that was all an accident, and I would say a happy accident, even though it cost me two of the most successful shows in the history of television, and it didn't work out so well either for Jim Garrison but it will work out for history because of the films. But I was in 1979. I wasn't interested in Garrison or the assassination, and I'd only talked to Jim Garrison three times. And the first time was to book him in 1970. I became the host of the ABC talk show, morning show, in Los Angeles, a live 90-minute show. That was a year after he had lost the Clay Shaw trial. He arrested Clay Shaw's, you know, 1967, and immediately announced on camera, we've solved the crime. It was committed by the Central Intelligence Agency, and we will prove it in court. And we will name names and we'll track them. I mean, he, he had solved it. Now, everybody jumped all over him. The media poo-pooed him, called him a nut and a whack job in the government. They did that for two years. Now, I didn't pay any attention to it. I believed, you know, the, the government, when they say Oswald did it, why would the government lie about something like that, you know? And it was a country that I'd been deported from twice, and I was trying to get into legally, so I didn't want to question the government about anything like that. But I get this show, and we have the number one show in L.A. We're bumping heads with the Today Show. We put people on like Muhammad Ali. Everybody wants him in jail because he won't go to Vietnam and kill yellow people. He said because white people are his enemy. We had Hanoi Jane Fonda on the show and taught her to speak properly when she was trying to sell peace to the world. And I've won my first Emmy. And I'm in a bookstore. It's called Edmund's Bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. And there's a book called Heritage of Stone. And I look at the author, Jim Garrison. Is this the same guy? So I pick it up just to leap through it. I stood there for four hours and read the book. I couldn't put it down. I mean, I learned things that I didn't, I'd never heard of. I mean, he had to take time life to the Supreme Court to get the Supreme Court to order time life to give him the Zabruder film to show the jury. And then there's a only forensic pathologist, supposedly, in the autopsy room, Pierre Fink, who testifies that they're not even allowed to perform the autopsy. They're not even allowed to look at photographs, that's why, or x-rays, that's why, in the Ward report, there's just one, two cartoon drawings of a bullet going through the back of John Kennedy's said. I mean, it looks like Mad Magazine put it together, but I wasn't aware <laughs> of it. But I thought, my God, what a story. And I'm a storyteller. It's not, and I never considered myself having talent as a writer or performer or any of that, even though I was successful at it. I was a storyteller. When I wrote jokes, I thought I was telling a story. When I had a guest, I tried to get a guest who had a story to tell. Who had a greater story than Jim Garrison about the murder of the President of the United States? So in the morning, I first thing, I knew the time difference. I call New Orleans and I get the uh, district attorney's office 
and a bass baritone voice answers, beautiful voice, says, hello. I said, can I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? And he said, speaking. This is Mr. Garrison. And I got all excited. Oh, Mr. Garrison, my name's John Barber. I just finished reading Heritage of Stone. And Jeffrey, he laughed out loud. He said, oh, you must be the other one because I only sold two copies. Which is not true. It was a bestseller. But in any event, I thought I got the number one show in in the country for a morning show. I the, uh, Nicholas Johnson, the FCC commissioner, liked it so much. Not only did he send a letter to Leonard Goldenson, president of ABC, he asked to come on the show. So I would love to have you on to talk about your uh, your book and your case. And he said, John, you'll never get away with it. And I told him about the ratings and all the rest of it. And I finally talked him into it. He relaxed, even though he said I'd never get away with it. And he reminded me it was 1970, and it was six years after the publication of the Warren Report. And he says to me, you know, 80% of all the people don't believe, according to the Harris polls, that Oswald did it or did it alone. And I said, well, if everybody knows that, why isn't something happening? And he said, well, you didn't see the second question in the, in the poll. The second question is, would you like to see a deeper investigation involving an investigation of the FBI and the CIA? We'll be right back, and you'll have to pick up the story again. The Hollywood veteran, JFK guru, John Barber. We'll be right back after these messages. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back to the show. This is Donald Jeffries filling in for Richard Serrett. Uh, John, go ahead, please. I'm sorry to interrupt you again if you can finish that story. Oh, uh, that's all right. Listen, if you didn't have the commercials, you wouldn't be on here. doesn't bother <laughs> me at all. But in any event, when he told me about that, and he said, what does that say about us that only 23% want a real investigation? And without missing a beat, I said, Mr. Garrison, I know what it says to me. I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car or on the pool table or in the bedroom or at the back alley or whatever to conceive me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he howled. And he said, can I quote you? Because it sounds like one of my favorite quotes from Mark Twain and I said what's that Mark Twain said it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled and John we have been fooled since November 22nd 1963 so I book him and I'm fired and he's canceled but I never thought that it had anything to do with my it was I know it was reminiscent of what happened to me in Chicago but I didn't connect the two okay so my the job that I get after after that is as a critic um, because by that time I was the uh, film critic for 10 years for Los Angeles magazine and so I got a job at uh, uh, channel 11 and then and Tom Brokaw saw me and brought me to NBC and I was at it in NBC for five years, but I'm just a storyteller, and I talked to Garrison Lee twice after that because I love talking to him on the phone. I've only met three geniuses in my life. My son is one, Buckminster Fuller, the scientist, is the other, 
and Jim Garrison. And I just love listening to him. It is beautiful. Orson Welles voice. And so during uh, um, Vietnam, uh, I called him so that we could talk about the war. And then when Frank Sinatra, uh, Sinatra's private writer for about four years, and when he took over the Tonight Show one night, he asked me to come on and do a stand-up. And if you go, if you can just Google YouTube John Barber and the Tonight Show with Sinatra, you'll see the whole stand-up. And there's a line in the stand-up when I mentioned Watergate. And I said, Watergate is something that may have put us on the brink of democracy. Well, the audience cheered and applauded. And that was back then, for crying out loud. And Garrison phoned me and asked me if I, he could steal some of my material again. And I said, yes. So, but it was just a phone call until Real People became the number one monster show in the country. And what happens is that in television, those people who own the shows, like George Slaughter owned Real People, but he had nothing to do with it becoming number one. As a matter of fact, he started to destroy it when he hired a 12-year-old kid, Peter Billingsley, to host the show, co-host the show. And I, we, uh, we almost got into a fist fight. I said, you can't have a 12-year-old kid telling real people's stories. But the reason he signed them, do you remember Alan Rodney Rippey? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Well, tell the audience who he is. Well, he was, he was a cute little black kid that was in a lot of uh, commercials, I believe, back then. That's right. And he was, in, he was also in a sitcom. So Slaughter... Put Peter, uh, 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 the guy I just mentioned, uh, I'm just, I, I want to forget him because it's such a bad experience. And it, it put him, put him, Billingsy, on the show because he thought he was going to have the white Rodney Allen Rippey and get a contract from NBC. Instead, after two years, that started to lead to the decline of the show. In any event, what happened is Freddie Silverman which is the Peter Principle incognite, calls Slaughter, and he wants to know if he can do a rip-off of Network. Remember Network with Mad as Hell, I'm not going to take it sure. anymore with Peter Finch. <laughs> and, and so they do a thing called Speak Up America. And George asked me to help him with them. And I said, no, I'm trying to save real people, which you're trying to destroy, for God's sake. I'm working 20 hours a day writing and editing all this stuff. So in any event, his show is dying, the one there. And I read on the page 13 of the L.A. Times that the House Select Committee had concluded, and they're reporting something in the past, had concluded that a conspiracy existed in the murder of Martin Luther King and John Kennedy because they found the H.B. McLean's dicta belt. He was a motorcycle officer at Dealey Plaza who had left his... Uh, di- recording device on on his waist, the dicta belt, and it recorded more than four gunshots. So even though G. Robert Blakey, the CIA hack, who went around trying to blame the mafia and wrote uh, and, and wrote a thank you to the CIA at the opening of his book about the plot to kill Kennedy, I mean, it's just despicable. But in any event, he had to conclude there was a conspiracy and it rests as a cold case at the Robert Kennedy Justice Department. 
What a name for the Justice Department. <laughs> Somebody else yeah. who will not receive justice in this country, along with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and John F. Kennedy. So anyway, I pick up the phone immediately and I call Mr. Garrison. And he's thrilled to hear from me. And I say, Mr. Garrison, don't you feel vindicated? And he chuckled again. And he had this great sardonic sense of humor. And he was always singing Cole Porter or Rogers and Hammerstein or quoting Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare. And I, he and I had that in common. But in any event, he says to me, he said, John, I feel like a blind man has gotten a small trophy in a very dark room. Only I know I got it. And he said, nobody will ever see the files that I sent to them. I, I asked him, I said, well, didn't they call you to testify? He said, I turned them down. And I said, why? I said, well, listen, they tore up all my subpoenas to Helms and everybody else. So I tore up theirs. And they will never see. They will. They might release some CIA files, but they'll never release my files. People should go to www.johnbarbersworld.com. They can see the first Garrison Tapes for Nothing. It's an award-winning film. It is just absolutely spectacular. Also, you can go, you can see me with Sinatra, you can see me on the roads with Red Fox, who became my mentor. You can go to um, the, uh, the link that will take you to the book, uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout who changed the face of American television. And I assure you, it is the best book ever written about anyone who was ever in show business. Also, there is a link to the definitive documentary about the murder of John Kennedy, solved by Jim Garrison, and the birth and purpose of fake news. It's on Amazon for only $2, and it's a runaway monster hit. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Now, I've read every book on the assassination. Twelve of them are totally brilliant. But this movie is better than all of them put together because it's only one-tenth of the cost. It takes you a week or two to read a book. only takes you two hours to see this film. And anyway, I want to thank you very, very much, every having me on the show i just love to talk to you well we i love to we we talk all the time and it's it's always a pleasure and uh the time i knew the time would go fast and and, and it certainly always does and i want to thank uh richard Surratt for letting me guest host and i love doing this and i admire his work very much and obviously i admire john barber very much go out and buy his book i hope everyone enjoyed the show and richard will be back with you the same time next week and we'll talk soon